0: Let's uh, ask the Lord's guidance as we look today at Christ as a revolutionary. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your infinite patience with us, your enduring love for us, your undying faithfulness to us. And we confess that we stumble around so much down here. We struggle with who you are and what we are. We struggle with our inconsistencies, with loving those that don't measure up to our standards, whatever those may be. We struggle with having those kinds of standards that are prideful. We confess our woundedness to you, our limitations, knowing that we cannot measure up even to the standards that we have made for others to measure up to. And we thank you that none of that matters to you, that you love us anyway. Teach us To have a different base for our love, to move from because of love to in spite of love. To love people in spite of themselves and not because of how they are. I ask that you take this time today and bring light to the shadow places in us and bring truth to the places of confusion and doubt in us. I ask this in the name of Christ our Lord and our Savior who died because of us and loves us in spite of us. Pray this in his name. Amen. Uh, Did I, and I think I did, but I've lost my notes from last time. Um, Did I give you all sort of an assignment to be reflective on for a couple of weeks, because <laughs> it's been two weeks, and no one, <laughs> and you lost the assignment too, is that what we're looking at here? I don't remember what it was. Uh, we were talking about Christ, um, you know, going into places that, that uh, no one else would go, um, as the revolutionary, uh, uh, being intentional uh, about, uh, going to those those places of um, that no one else wanted to go to uh, the Sumerian, uh, Samaritan uh, arena. And I think part of what I asked you to think about, which is, is not exactly what I, I think we're all forgetting, <laughs> um, was to be reflective on what that looks like in your life how and, and, and to be intentional as you go through your days looking for those people whom the Lord is bringing across your path um, that you might not otherwise notice and i don't know if any of you have you know uh, been uh... uh... aware of that as you have been out in the world but you know i want to give an opportunity for you to share if um, what we looked at last time has has changed how you were seeing people and how you were engaging uh, people. So is there anyone that that has sort of tried to be more intentional about how you see people and how you engage uh, others? I thought I saw Patty getting ready to say something, but maybe not. Mm -hmm. In fact, it's very surprising to me how much people want to talk about the hope of Jesus Christ, even though a lot of times they're like, like they're in the middle of a divorce. It's amazing how much people will will Mm -hmm. tell you. I guess because they figure they're never going to see you (laughs) again. That's cheap therapy. Pardon me? Cheap therapy. (laughs) Yes. And, and but very costly therapy in a different way, you know. <laughs> yes. Wait, and you walk away from it, even though you've invested time with this person. Yeah. You're sitting there anyways. You walk away and it's just you're just so full of joy that you were able yes. to really discuss someone that you do really love. See, this is the thing. Uh the world really is seeking whether they know it or not, they're seeking in all, for love in all the wrong places. But all of this quest that our society has for this or that and, and the obsessiveness that we, our society and compulsions that our society is famous for and, and, and the addictions, those are all a, a yearning in the soul for something we do not have. That was the message of the woman uh, at the well. Uh, You know, her life took her from one man to another man to another man to another man, and it was a hunger in her soul that no human can meet that Christ addressed. And we look at who has control of this planet, and uh, temporary control, but certainly uh, control, has his authority grip on this planet, and that is Satan. And, and he, is, he is the author of counterfeit. He is the author of emptiness. And if he can keep us from the one who has the answer, who has what can fill and satisfy, then that's what he will do. And so this world does not know the answer that we have. And when they begin to glimpse it, uh, they began to feel something stirring in them that they may not even understand. Um, my daughter, and a lot of you have probably already seen this, but my daughter sent me uh, a deal about uh, a Macy's store in Philadelphia that had this, um, this there's this group that that's, uh, has a goal of doing a thousand not moments of culture, but just uh, acts of random acts of culture, and they're doing a thousand of them just in different places. Uh, th- and they're big; they're big items. Well, this group got together 650 of the best singers in Philadelphia, accompanied by the Wanamaker pipe organ, and uh, the pipe organ evidently was. Piped in with um, recorded music, but these 650 people were just randomly milling about as shoppers in Macy's, this big, huge Macy's Center. And they started playing the introduction to the Hallelujah Chorus over, uh, you know, the, the, the organ introduction. And then all of these amazing voices start singing. And it is the most amazing thing. I have watched it four times and cry every time I watch it. Everybody stops. They stand. People that are sitting stand up. And at the end, the response of all the people in Macy's was astonishing. That tapped into something that all of those people there are hungering for. And many of them don't even know what it is. And we have the answer. And if the revolution is to continue, it must continue through you and me. It must continue through you and me. I would urge you all to, to watch that. Somebody's probably sending it to you. I've got it on my Facebook page, but please, if you haven't seen it, you must see it. It is astonishing. Uh, but it speaks to this draw that the true Christ has on true seekers. On people who understand their limitations at some level, and they may not be conscious of it, but when the this revolutionary Christ speaks to those places in, in even the the blind, they they yearn for sight. And so we're looking here today at Christ, uh, this revolutionary Christ, and and how he saw the eyes of Christ and we look at the fact that what precedes how Christ saw things is his focus. His focus dictated how Christ saw and whom he saw. I want us to start in Matthew 13 uh, verses 44 through 46 in which Christ is talking about the kingdom of heaven And he is, so his subject here in in what is being described is how the kingdom of heaven is. In verse 44 of chapter 13 of Matthew, again, the kingdom of heaven is likened to a treasure hidden in a field, which when a man has found, he hides and for joy goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is likened to a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who, when he has found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had, and he bought it. So what he's talking about here is that the kingdom of God that he has brought to earth, brought with him to earth, is a hidden kingdom. It is a hidden kingdom that must be sought for. It's not one that we will just casually find. Now, why is that? It is because this planet has been wrested away from God's realm eons ago. And it has been warped and bent and twisted. And the only reason this planet is not hell itself is because of the restraining presence of God because it no longer is in the kingdom of light. It is no longer in the, the realm of truth. It, is, it has been brought over into the shadowlands of lies and deception and all of those characteristics that are of Satan himself because Satan is the authority over this planet now. And if you, if you turn over a page to Matthew uh, 12... Where Christ is being accused by the church leaders, those who were in the darkness, of being of Satan or of Beelzebub, Christ refutes that. This is the only time I can think of in the scriptures, though there may be another one, I don't think there is, in which Christ actually directly countered what the Pharisees were saying against him. I don't think of any other time when when accusations were brought against Christ in which he directly addressed them. But here in verse 25 as a lead-in to where I'm going here, uh, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. If Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then shall his kingdom stand? If I by Beelzebub cast out devils, by whom do your children cast them out? Therefore, they shall be your judges. But if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is come unto you. Else how can one enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he first bind the strong man, and then he will spoil his house? He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathers not with me scatters abroad. That's kind of a strange scripture, but what I think he's saying here is that this planet is the strong man's house. And the strong man is Satan. This lost orb is of the household of Satan. Satan is in authority over it. And it was at Calvary that Christ bound the strong man. So that for the first time in human history, God through Christ, through Christ's followers could now begin to go into the strong man's house and spoil his goods and take what he has possessed. So when Christ came, he came cloaked in parable. He came wrapped in the mystery of prophecy. I'm hoping I can find over in Amos what i just now realizing I probably need to um, uh, read to you. I think it's in Amos. It may not be. It is, it's the name is three verse seven. Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he reveals his secret unto his servants the prophets. He reveals his secret unto his servants, the prophets. So what the prophets were prophesying about was a secret made known only to them. Why was that? It was because the kingdom of God would come as a hidden thing. Because it is God sneaking into a lost planet, a planet controlled by Satan, sneaking in through belief and through faith and planting his kingdom in the hearts of people. So that suddenly when there is one who believes a light turns on in the darkness. And when there's another one who believes, a light turns on in the darkness. It's a hidden kingdom in the heart. That's why Christ always looked for the hidden heart message. Was a person's heart seeking? It didn't matter how they performed. Were they they seeking him with their heart? And, And that's what mattered. And so you have the woman uh, in uh, Luke s- seven, who comes in with the alabaster uh, box, and um, she is a woman of um, a bad reputation. Yeah, it's Luke seven, thirty six. Christ is dining with the Pharisees, the people who did not have a heart for him, the people who were confronting him all the time, but he went and ate at this Pharisee's house, evidently by invitation. Um, whether the Pharisee's heart was actually seeking, you know, we get a glimpse that it probably wasn't because he was so steeped in, in his own judgmental attitude toward anything that didn't measure up to his standards. So in verse 36, one of the Pharisees desired that he would eat with him. He went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at uh, dinner at the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment. Now this is not Mary of Bethany. That we see she does this just about five or six days before Jesus is crucified. Um... And she was not this woman uh, and I and both Mary Magdalene and Mary of Bethany have been given bad raps on this, but this is not the same thing. This is uh, much earlier on in in Christ's ministry before he ever was headed toward uh, Jerusalem he doesn't start heading toward Jerusalem, which probably took many weeks until Luke nine. but here she is coming and at Mary of Bethany, she comes to Simon the leper's house where Jesus is eating. This is not Simon the leper's house. This is the Pharisee's house. And she brings this alabaster box of ointment. And she stood at the feet behind him weeping and began to wash his feet with tears and did wipe them with the hairs of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. If somebody did that to you, how would you respond? <laughs> totally embarrassed, right? Is that a word I'm putting in somebody's mouth that I need not do? I think we'd be embarrassed. I think we'd feel very awkward and uncomfortable. I mean, what, <laughs> what is this? And I just had my hair fixed, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I, that is our focus. That's how we see. That's how this Pharisee saw. I mean, I think we'd be more aware of where the Pharisee was sitting than where Christ was sitting. And the Pharisees is looking at this and thinking, oh my gosh. If, if he were a prophet, he would know who this woman is. So it was a litmus test for who Christ was, by the way. And if he knew who she was, he would not tolerate this because it's totally inappropriate. Hm. Sounds too much like us. So the Pharisees... The Pharisee, which had bidden Christ, when he saw it, he spoke with him himself, saying, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who it is, and what manner of woman she is that touches him, for she's a sinner, she's a prostitute. Probably. That's, that's because her reputation was all over the place. If not a prostitute, certainly a woman who probably you know, slept around with a lot of men. And Jesus answering him, said in, uh, to him, um, I have something to say to you. There is a certain creditor who had two debtors, the one owed 500 pence and the other 50. And when they had nothing uh, to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him the most? And he answered and said, unto him, uh, said I suppose that he to whom he forgave the most. And Christ said, You have rightly judged. And he turned to the woman and said unto Simon, See this woman. I entered into your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has also washed my feet with tears, and wiped them with the hairs of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil you did not anoint, but this woman has anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she has loved much, and to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little." Because her heart loved him, not because of her, her behaviors, but because her heart sought him and her heart loved him, much was forgiven. He looked for the hidden kingdom of her heart. Because the kingdom of heaven is a hidden thing. It is hidden in the field of the soul. Notice that in Matthew 13, where we just read, when the man found the treasure hidden in the field, he didn't extract the treasure from the field. He went and bought the field. The hidden kingdom of God purchases our field, buys the field of our soul with the blood of Christ. We are bought with a price. It's interesting that he didn't say he, went, he just dug the treasure up and took it home with him. He bought the field. It's a picture of Christ buying the field of our soul. And he leaves the treasure hidden there so that it can eventually be revealed in how we live and how we see and how we think. So that then it will become a beacon, a light on a hill, hill that does not have a bushel basket over it but one that shines in the darkness. Because you see, Satan had to be deceived from the hiddenness of the kingdom of his adversary. He, he couldn't be given privy to the nature of what the prophecy meant. So prophecy was always sort of couched in confusing places. You never see real clarity on the 2,000-at-least-year time span between the prophecy of the suffering servant and the prophecy of the king of kings. It, it didn't, you, you don't see the bridge there. You don't see the gap there. Why is that? I think it was to confuse Satan more than to confuse us. Um, let me see if I can find a couple. Uh, well, turn over to First Corinthians 2. Just to track as best I can here on the spur of the moment, this idea of the prophecy was a secret that God granted to his prophets, a secret of this hidden kingdom. And they just prophesied what they saw. They didn't interpret. That's one of the characteristics of the prophets. They never interpreted. They just prophesied. We're the ones that try to interpret. It's because we're not prophets. Uh, verse 7 uh, of First Corinthians 2, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now, who are the princes of this world that he's talking about? I think it's those rulers of the darkness of this world. We, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and rulers of the darkness of this world. The ruler over the country of Persia that the uh, angel Gabriel fought against as he was coming to deliver a message from God to Daniel. And he had to call forth the archangel Michael to help him fight against this prince of Persia, this ruler of the kingdoms of the world that Satan had tempted Christ with in the wilderness. Took him into a high place and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. I don't think those were just physical kingdoms. I think those were spiritual, a spiritual territories that he has different rulers designated over. I think each nation of the world has a spiritual ruler and it's not coming from God it's coming from Satan because Satan had those kingdoms and it's not until Revelation 11:15 that those kingdoms finally come back to God Yes, yes. In fact, go back over to Matthew 13, where we just came from. And and we see that. Uh, That's an excellent point, uh, Dave. Um, Matthew 13, the uh, disciples asked Christ in Matthew 13, verse 10, Why do you speak in parables? I'm sure it's kind of confusing. He was speaking in parables all over the place why don't you just come out and say what you mean in fact that's what they said this is such a random study this morning i you know who who knows where we're going to wind up but uh turn over to john Exactly, because the mystery of God is finished yes. as far as the salvation plan. Absolutely. So he didn't have to speak in parables anymore. He could speak clearly. And that's what we see in John in the last evening just before he goes out to Gethsemane. Uh, turn over to John um, uh, 16. Was it because Jesus was with him also? So he had to close what he said to the disciples because the devil was around him. Oh, Did Yes. Yeah. then when he's gone, that's when John, this, the passage of John, when he speaks clearly. Yes. Judas is already gone. Uh, yes, Judas is gone, and Christ is getting ready. I mean, it's too late for Satan to pick up on the message here. Everything is set. And so at the very end, the very, just before he prays for them and then goes out to Gethsemane, he, re, he, he speaks clearly, and they note it. Uh, here, he says, um, in all of uh, chapter 16, actually, 15, 16, uh, 14, 15, 16, he is speaking clearly. But at the very end, he really nails it. Uh, down for them, uh, in verse 24 as a lead-in, we'll start there in chapter 16, he says, here, here before you have asked nothing in my name, ask and you shall receive that your joy may be full. These things have I spoken unto you in Proverbs, parables. But the time comes when I shall no more speak unto you in, in parables, but I shall show you plainly of the Father. At that day you shall ask in my name, and I, shall, I shall say not unto you that I will pray the, to the Father for you, but the Father himself loves you because you have loved me, and you have believed that I came out from God. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to my Father. His disciples said unto him, Lo, now you are speaking plainly and not in parables. Now are we sure, (laughs) it just blows my mind, now are we sure that you know all things and need not that any man should ask you. By this we believe that you came forth from God. And Jesus is like shaking his head saying, Do you now get it? He ended his parable ministry. Why was he speaking in parables? Over here, back over to Matthew 13. He explains it. They asked him there in verse 10, Why are you speaking unto parables? And he answered in verse 11, Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it is not given to know this. To them means those who do not walk by faith and he mentions that down there and i think it also means to satan satan knew scripture but he didn't understand scripture because scripture was cloaked enough in parable enough in symbolism and enough in prophecy for him not to get it that's why i think daniel is so symbolic because satan to disallow satan from understanding exactly when all of this was to take place, that where you have the, the nations and the kings reflected in this strange figure in Daniel who had uh, you know, different manifestations. That symbolism, you say, well, why is he speaking that way? It is not to confuse us as much as it is to confuse Satan. So Satan can't get at the timing of things and know what's going to happen and when. So he goes on here, for whosoever, verse 12, has, to him shall be given, and he shall, well, let's see, verse 13, of uh, chapter 13 of Matthew, verse 13. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because they seeing see not, and hearing they will hear not, neither understand. And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which says, by hearing, you shall hear and shall not understand, and seeing, you shall see and not perceive. For this people's heart is waxed gross. You see, Christ looked at the hidden treasures of the heart and the hidden condition of the heart. And the woman whose behavior appeared to... Reflect an unrighteous heart did not. It disguised a righteous heart. It disguised a seeking heart. He would see the true heart and he would welcome someone whom no one else would welcome because he knew her heart was right toward him. But he also recognizes those whose hearts are not right toward him but whose outward behaviors might appear to be right. And that's what he's talking about here. Those people whose hearts are waxed gross, the King James says, whose hearts are evil and corrupted and who have no desire to know him, the parables are designed to keep them from understanding what's going on because his is a hidden kingdom that clandestinely plants itself in the heart, in the human heart. Their ears are dull of hearing, their eyes are closed, lest at any time they should see with their eyes and hear, and their heart should be converted, and I should heal them. And I don't understand that, except that may have to do with the Jews having a blindness that was coming upon them, that was a supernatural blindness, to allow for the kingdom to go to the Gentiles. Uh, Romans 11 speaks to that, the whole chapter does, speaks to that. Blessed are your eyes that they see, and your ears, for they hear. Now you go on down to verse 34. All these things Jesus spoke unto the multitude in parables. Without a parable, he didn't speak unto them, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the earth kept secret so Satan would not be able to thwart. Turn over to Ephesians 1, 9. I'll start with verse 8 as a lead in, wherein he has abounded, Christ has abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to the good pleasure, to his good pleasure, which he has proposed in himself. Turn over to uh, chapter 3, verse 4. Whereby, when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Uh, Ephesians 3, verse 5. So it's now not just being revealed to the prophets, but to the apostles that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ. That's part of the mystery. You see, Israel was sacrificed. Sacrificed so that we, as Gentiles, might come to know Christ as Messiah, as Savior. Now, they were not sacrificed because they had as innocents, they were sacrificed because they had refused to accept him. So it's not God doing some sort of clandestine, terrible act upon them. This was the consequence. His original plan was that the world would be saved through the Jews. But they refused that. And so there came a blindness upon them. And this is spoken of at, at length in Romans 11. There came a blindness upon them, at first because of their own blindness, and then because God, through the Holy Spirit, stopped dealing with them. And He set them aside. And they, if you read Romans 11 carefully, will have, as a people, as a nation, a second chance. It's the only place I can find in Scripture where anyone will have a second chance. But they will, and it's because they were sacrificed so that we might be saved. They were sacrificed because of the hardness of their heart. But then when God ushered in the era of the Gentiles, he really stopped dealing with them and has to this very day. But there will come a time where he will deal with them, and Zechariah 12 will be true. Well, they they will look upon him whom they have pierced and will mourn him as if he were their only son that had died. And all of Israel will be saved. That ties in with the vision of the dry bones in Ezekiel 37. But all of this understanding was hidden in a mystery. So that the Gentiles might be saved. Um, turn on over oh verse Um, 9 verse 8 he's talking about preaching uh, among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the world has been hid in God who created all things by Jesus Christ. Turn over to Colossians 1. Uh, Verse 27, or 26. He's talking about being made a minister of Christ. Even a a minister of the mystery, verse 26, which has been hid from ages and from generations, but now is manifest to his saints to whom... Now it's to the saints. The first, the mystery was manifest to the prophets alone, then to the prophets and the apostles, and now to the saints, to the believers. So the mystery is being revealed because... The binding of the strong man was accomplished at Calvary, and Satan can no longer get in and thwart God's plans if he has his people in the revolution. Because he only reaches people through people, he only reaches the world through people who carry his spirit, who carry his kingdom and who let his kingdom rub up against the kingdomless, the ones who have not the light, and who can just pass the torch, who can just strike a match and light their candle. That's why we are so important. So go on here in verse 27, to whom God the saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is, the mystery is now proclaimed, this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you. That's the mystery that has been hidden. That this king of the universe would steal like a thief in the night into the darkness and take one of the dark souls and put a light in it. It was a mystery hidden until that moment that now the mystery is Christ in us, establishing his outpost of light in the, the entire planet that is darkened by Satan's grip. And so he comes like a thief in the night, truly to steal away those that have been in his clutch. Because he now can do that because he has been bound whether he realizes it or not. Because Calvary and Christ going in to death and taking the keys of death in his hand and going into hell and taking the keys of hell in his grip from Satan's grip, Revelation 1. And coming back out of death with those keys and back out of hell with those keys bound the prince of this world, bound the strong man. He no longer has the keys. Jesus has the keys. And Satan didn't get it, because if he'd gotten it, he never would have crucified Christ. He would have let him die an old man. And that's why prophecy, that's why the parables, and that's why in the last moments with his disciples, he finally spoke true and clear where they could understand it. He always spoke true but clear where they could understand it because everything was set, and he was getting ready to steal into death and come back out in victory. He was getting ready to steal the only man in human history who stole into hell, who slipped into hell, and came back out. Everyone else is plunging toward hell and Satan is gleeful. Satan didn't know that the hidden kingdom was going into hell itself. To bring back out the keys so that in the key possession, Christ bounded. And now he can speak true. He doesn't have to speak, as you said, Dave, in parables. He speaks the truth in clarity and in ways people can know and understand because it doesn't have to be, the plan doesn't have to be hidden anymore in this way. The plan of Christ in us no longer has to be concealed. Yes. So he's not coming, he's already coming. He comes every time someone accepts Christ as a savior, he comes as a thief in the night, stealing. But he will come with... Now. Now, he came as a thief in the night in the first time as he was crucified to grasp and to take power and to take control of Yes, yes. Mystery. Well, not a mystery, but also not as much uh, uh, fighting going on speaking, because they, they're, they're they're neutered. They're not neutered. I think there is. I think there is as much fighting. I do because I think he is frantically trying to save his possessions, because once the the strongman is bound that we looked at in Matthew 12, then people can come in who are are the Revolutionary's agents. Uh, The Revolutionary can come in through his, his agents and spoil the goods and begin to take his possessions from him, but he is screaming and screeching and scratching and clawing to keep that from happening. I think he knows at some level that he has lost the big war But he is going to take everyone with him that he can. So in that way, the fight is fierce. I think it's worse. And I think it's worse because how dare God come in and take what is mine? This world is mine. These people in the darkness, they are mine. How dare he come in and take them? I think the spiritual warfare is immense. And that's why you see so much struggle at times with with loved ones who who get in uh, the addictions. Mm -hmm. That's Satan setting up his stronghold. Yes. So strong, they're so Yeah. Yeah, I you you just look at it and you, you see how something grips a person and they can't get over it. That's Satan coming back in and with a Christian who has a stronghold, who has an addiction. That's where Satan has set up his toehold in our soil. And he's setting up his little ter- kingdom turf in the Christian soul, not the spirit. The spirit cannot be touched by Satan. But he can come back in, and if we give him authority by free will. See, this, this, this authority thing is huge. The authority of the planet passed from God to Satan by man's free will decision. It will then, therefore, only be swung back to God by man's free will decision. That's why spiritual warfare is so intense. Satan is trying to thwart that, trying to keep that from happening. So if as a Christian where we have swung into the kingdom of light, by our free will choice to accept Christ as our Savior, Satan doesn't stop fighting. He tries to reclaim lost ground. Now the battlefield is no longer the spirit because it is possessed. It is in the hand of God. We are hid with Christ in God, our spirit. And Christ said, no one takes you from my father's hand. And this is the security of the believer, which I haven't come to automatically and rotely, but when you look at the Greek and the way it's framed, there's no other way to know it. He says, you cannot, cannot be taken from my father's hand. Double negative. And said, my father will not, will not, will not, triple negative cast you out from within. You have come within, you will not be cast out from within. So once we have gone into the kingdom, and the kingdom has gone into us, it is an eternal marriage. It's like the merging of the Mississippi River with the the Gulf of Mexico, those bracken waters. You can't separate those out. They've merged. And God's eternal Holy Spirit has merged with my eternal spirit, merged. Married, one, inseparable, forever. But Satan can get at our soul, the place in us that has tracks of pain and tracks of gouges and tracks of all the stuff that's happened in our life. It has our personality, our will, our emotions, our responses to our senses, our soulish. Satan can get there. And that's why the warfare is so intense with Christians because he is trying to to neutralize the effectiveness. He's trying to put a bushel basket over the light so that people won't guess how good the light is. And so when you and I as Christians give in to something, just kind of benignly, casually, a sin, a habit, whatever, and then we just make another exception later on down the road, three months later, then the next exception will probably be less than three months. And then the next exception will probably be a little bit less than that. And then there comes a time where you're realizing in a certain area of your life that you no longer have control over it. It's beginning to have control over you, and you can't quite change that. Whatever that is, it may be drinking, it may be drugs, it may be whatever. Food, it may be uh some sort of obsessive TV watching, or reading, I, you know, anything that is like something that's got you. What is that? That's a place where by my free will choice, I have consented to something other than God. I just took a little bite off the fruit of that tree. It wasn't a big deal. But then I took another bite. And then what happens is, by my free will choice in the soulish realm, I've given permission for Satan to come in, whether I realized it or not, just like Adam and Eve didn't fully realize what was going on there. And after a while, when I no longer can control it, it's controlling me, he has said, he's, signed, he's shaking my hand, and he said, deal. And in that area of stronghold, he has set up his kingdom turf. Here's the war. God slips in in the hidden kingdom of the heart and secures it eternally in light. And then Satan tries to come back and reclaim some lost ground. And so if he can set up a stronghold in a Christian, then he's diminishing the light. He's diminishing the effectiveness. And that stronghold doesn't get set up without my free will decision to not do it God's way, but to slide over here and be casual. And then one day I can no longer be casual. One day it has me. That's the stronghold. It's an authority thing, and it's why strongholds are so difficult to bring down. Because once I have given in, by choice, to something that is not of God, but something that is distantly, remotely related to Satan, which it isn't. Distant and remotely related are in quotes, but we think it is. We think it's a sort of a casual thing. Well, once it gets its hook in us, Satan gets its hook in us, he's called Poneros, the evil one by Christ, in uh, John 17 and John 13. That word poneros means malignant evil. So once he gets his hook into a benign growth in us, it becomes malignant. And when it becomes malignant, it's a stronghold because I have given into it enough that he has claimed his authority. So he has now his outpost in the kingdom of light. God has put his outposts, In the kingdom of darkness, which is you. But the strongholds are Satan coming back in trying to so possess the soul and debilitate the soulish realm in us that we're not effective. What Jesus saw had to do with his focus. His focus was on the hidden kingdom, the treasures hidden in the field. His focus is on your heart and mine. And now we are witness to the mystery that had been kept secret since the prophets, the mystery of Christ in us. And the mystery of that battle that that rages between Christ and us and Satan seeking to reclaim some of the soul. So he looks for the condition of the heart. And he loves the heart. He loves the person, whether they're going to accept him or reject him. You know, the rich young ruler in Mark 10. Christ looked into his heart and knew that there were problems in his heart and he told him, this is the one thing you lack. But when he looked into his heart, it says he loved him. He loves even those who reject him. When he was at the Mount of Olives overlooking Jerusalem, he wept over Jerusalem. He said, how I've longed to gather you to me as mother hen would gather her chicks under her Wings, but you would not. He wept over not that he was rejected. His pain was not from his own pain. His tears were from the loss that Jerusalem was going to experience, that he was going to have to go to someone else to save the world. So what he sees, even in those who do not love him, are souls that he cherishes and loves. Unlike us, we judge. But Christ loves. Because he came not to condemn the world or to condemn anyone, but he came to save. And if you and I would continue the revolution, we need to carry his eyes with us into our family, and to the world, and to our neighborhoods. And no matter how people reject Christ or reject us, with his eyes, we can love them anyway. It is a hidden kingdom that he's after here. And only we know it. Let's close our eyes. I would ask for you to just be thoughtful here about what the treasures are, the hidden treasures are, of the kingdom in you. What the hidden treasures are that lie about you. Maybe hidden treasures that you've missed that you've not even seen as treasure. Or maybe not even seen at all because they're hidden. I'd like for you to ask the Lord to show you what He wants you to see and how He wants you to see. Take time to respond to His nudges here of how then you should live, how then you should see others. And love them. I invite you, after you've had this time alone with the Lord, to, um, after you've perhaps made a commitment to do something different, to see differently, to walk differently, if you should choose, I invite you to come up and partake of your own individual, personal communion uh, of broken bread. wine with the Lord, and let it be your statement of commitment that I eat your body and I drink your blood, not only in remembrance of you, but in commitment to let your body live itself out in my flesh.